tonight we start our skeptical series. Um, since about February of this year, we were praying how God might lead us to kick off our fall semester with our students, and uh, we landed here. We want to try and address some of the most common questions that skeptics, seekers, maybe even Christians ask about what it looks like to follow after Christ. Uh, my name is David Botts. I am privileged to serve as the college pastor here at Crossway and uh, serve as the pastor of Crave. And we are excited that you're here, that you've chosen tonight and hopefully the next five weeks after tonight to continue to join with us as we try to answer some of the most common questions that people who are skeptical about God and about Christianity will ask. And tonight we're kicking off our series asking how can God allow pain and suffering and evil in the world? How can a loving God, a lot of people will ask. So to dive into this, uh, we need to set uh, kind of our terms and where we're going to be going. And so uh, just by way of introduction, want to make some things clear to you from this particular series. First, um, by asking these six questions, uh, just to be clear, we're not suggesting these are the only six questions that skeptics or people who are interested or curious about religion have. These aren't the uh, six questions that if we answer them correctly, suddenly you as a skeptic will um, go from not being a skeptic to being a Christ follower. We would never want to diminish the questions that some of you might have. And so we're using these six questions as a launching pad into our discussion, so to speak, because each night for the next, or each Wednesday night for the next six weeks, following our sermon worship gathering time, um, myself and some of our staff pastors will sit up here and we are going to do a live Q&A where we'll take your questions from the floor, regardless of who you are. Maybe you're a Christian and um, you've got some questions. Maybe you're a skeptic. You've got some questions. Maybe you're not one of those two. Maybe you would just openly identify as an atheist or an agnostic. We'll take your questions too. No one is excluded in the realm of asking questions. So we're not suggesting that we know all the answers or that these six questions are the six questions that need to be answered for you to become a Christ follower. Second, we just want to lay before you this conviction. We have a core conviction at our church that um, the Bible is perfect. It contains no errors. That's infallible is a technical theological term that we would use. And it's where we um, are ruled for faith and practice. To that end, there's actually, if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, there's a Bible in front of you um, in the chair. If you don't own a Bible, that's your Bible now. You can take that. You can read it. You can ask us questions from it. In fact, a, a good majority of the time that we're talking tonight, we're going to be looking at it. Because here's the bottom line. In an age full of people who will tell you everything that you supposedly need to know, we believe that the Bible is the only book that can really answer your deepest questions. We're, we believe it's the only thing that can answer the questions of your friends, and we're committed to that. And so I'm not going to try to convince you by my own reasoning or my own logic what is true, but rather I'm going to point you to the only book that has proven to be true for the last 2,000 years. A third conviction that we have is this. We believe that being a Christian or living out the Christian life is not an excuse to not think. So you may have come here tonight as a skeptic, or you may be a Christian 
who's wondering, I've been to my first year of university and I feel like I have to set aside being a reasonable thinking person to be a Christian. I would argue that that's a false analogy of what it looks like to follow after Christ. In fact, we would encourage you to engage your mind, your brain, to think deeply about what it means to be a Christ follower. Um, I, just putting my cards on the table, have a problem with loving to go to school. Um, I've been in school since kindergarten. I'm 28 years old, and I'm still a student. Just got back from a week of being in class in Kansas City. I'm a PhD student in theology. My wife tells me after this degree I'm done, I'm still trying to figure out how to argue for another one. So... Just to put our cards on the table, I have two master's degrees and a bachelor's degree, and I graduated from high school. Like, I'm proud of those, all of them. So, and if you escaped high school, you should be proud of everything that you've done to make it through that torrential four years of hormones and drama, because that's pretty much what high school is. So, I don't want to presuppose tonight that you don't have to be a thinker. In fact, the existence of God is, be, is kind of seeing a resurgence among philosophy. So if you're a person who's intrigued by philosophy, I would point you to people like Alvin Plantinga, Charles Taylor, or even Alistair McIntyre, three theists along the spectrum who all argue for the existence of God. Some of them I don't theologically agree with, but philosophically we're very, very close. So I don't want you to think tonight that in order for you to deal with questions of being a skeptic, that you necessarily have to set your mind to the side. So with that said, let's jump into answering this particular question. Why does a loving God allow pain, suffering, and evil in the world? In order to do what I want to do tonight, I want to attack our question from three angles. Three specific angles. I would like to start tonight with a philosophical answer or a philosophical argument. There is a problem with our question. Why does God allow evil, pain and suffering in this world? It's a good question. It's a very practical question. I think it probably impacts us more than we even recognize. But see, what you must understand at the beginning is that philosophically, evil is a negative. It presupposes a positive. So I want to unpack philosophically what I am arguing here. In order for you to say that evil exists in this world, we live inside a world of negation. Evil is negative, good is positive. If you argue that there is something evil in this world, then the opposite of that evil is that there is something good. You've already made, a by asking this question, or even thinking this question, you've already presupposed that there is a such a thing as good. Okay, so if I presuppose that evil exists in the world, something called good exists as well. If you presuppose that evil exists, and then therefore there must be something good, you also presuppose that there is such a thing called moral law that differentiates between good and evil. If you presuppose that there is a moral law 
something that helps us to define what is good and evil, you must presuppose that there's a moral law giver. But before we go further, what's interesting is if you presuppose that there's something good and there's something evil, therefore there must be a moral law, what do you do with all the people who say, right, like, I know what good is and I know what bad is. You've got to have a way of defining it. Moral law requires a definition. It's interesting. In 1948, Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell was, is a famous philosopher. Uh, he was a socialist, a liberal, and a pacifist. Debated Frederick Copleston, who is a Jesuit priest. So he's not even considered Baptist, even by the slightest imagination. But what's intriguing about this debate, and you can actually go online and listen to Frederick Copleston and uh, Bertrand Russell debate. And in the middle of this debate, Copleston asks Russell, he says to Russell, how do you differentiate between good and evil? How do you know that there is some such a thing as good and evil? And Bertrand Russell said, easily, I know what it is when I see it, just like I know that I prefer blue over green. Copleston said, well, that's easy. You see blue versus green. How can you differentiate between good and evil? Russell replied, it's what I feel. It's a dangerous idea to define good and evil based on what you feel. As Robbie Zacharias points out, if you have a neighbor that believes in loving their neighbor in certain cultures, you also have neighbors in certain cultures that believe in eating them. How do you determine which is good and evil based on a feeling? So, there has to be moral law to differentiate between good and evil. Where does the moral law come from? Well, there must be a moral, if there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. This is where we get to the existence of God. But play it out the other direction. You say, well, David, I think you're trying to trick me. No, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to be loose with philosophical terms either. But if there is no moral law giver, then there is no moral law. If there is no moral law, there's not such thing as good. If there's not a such a thing as good, then there's nothing that is evil. Now, in 2018, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents can agree on one thing. Being a Nazi is a bad thing, and being Hitler is even worse. If there is no moral law giver, there is no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no such thing as good. If there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as evil. Therefore, the conclusion of good versus evil means if I don't believe in a moral law giver, if I don't believe in moral law, if I don't believe in such a thing as good, and I don't believe in such a thing as evil, then what do you do with the Holocaust? don't know that there's anyone in here who would walk out those doors stopped by a CNN reporter or a Fox News cameraman or even let's just go KY3 local news and say into a camera for a wide world to see that World War II and the Holocaust are not some of the greatest atrocities that ever took place on this earth and actually that you can't really call Hitler evil interesting because the new atheist, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and others, Dawkins
Dawkins actually, in his lectures on Voltaire, admits and believes that there's no such thing as evil. It's just a moral construct. It's very dangerous, even if you don't want to affirm the God of the Bible, it's very dangerous to suggest that there's no moral lawgiver because when there's no moral lawgiver, there's no moral law. When there's no moral law, there's no such thing as good. When there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as evil. So therefore, when the question is asked, how can evil exist in a world, you have to do it in a particular kind of God. Now you might, at this point, say, aha, I found the hole in the argument. You said... If there's such a thing as evil, then there must be good. If there's such a thing as good, there must be a moral law. If there's such thing as a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. How can you possibly argue for a moral law giver? The answer to that question is easy. You say, how so? I'm glad you asked that question. The answer to that question is easy because every time we articulate the question, of how can a loving God allow pain, suffering, and evil, we're always talking about a person or towards a person. About a person or toward a person, which presupposes that there must be someone who has created this. Because logically you cannot say time plus space plus matter random activity contribute if you don't believe that it contributes. So when we talk about how can God allow pain, suffering, and evil in the world, just one more time, if there's such a thing as evil, which I think everyone in the room would agree that there's evil in the world, I don't know how you cannot look at the world around us and see that in the last Let's say two weeks, the atrocities that have been carried out by priests by the Roman Catholic Church in Pennsylvania that suggest that they go as high to, as the Vatican, we would agree in this room that evil exists. So if evil exists, therefore good must exist. If good exists, there must be a moral law by which we can discern what is good and what is evil. If there is a moral law by which we can discern what is good and evil, there must be a moral law giver. And I would argue that the moral law giver is none other than God himself. You say, great. But you said when you started that you believe in the Bible. And this little philosophical argument is nice. We still have a problem. How can pain, suffering, evil exist in this world? Well, if you brought a Bible with you or you have the one in front of you, I want you to open your Bible not very far to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And if you have, don't have a Bible and you have the one in front of you there, page 4 is where you will find Genesis chapter 3. But before we get to Genesis chapter 3, we have to set the stage for Genesis chapter 3 because to jump into a story halfway through just does disservice to what we're trying to accomplish tonight. And that is to answer difficult questions. Genesis chapter 3, this is going to blow your mind, is preceded by Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Inside of Genesis 1 and 2, here's what we find. We find in Genesis chapter 1, I would argue that Genesis chapter 1 is a prologue to Genesis chapter 2. 
It is the creation event in compress. Think of the beginning of a book where the author charts out where he's going to go. Genesis chapter 1, then you go to Genesis chapter 2, and boom, it starts to get flushed out. There's no contradiction there, and it's ironic. Sorry for the rabbit trail. It's ironic that we say, well, the Bible's inconsistent because here's Genesis chapter 1, and here's Genesis chapter 2. You don't do that with any other book. You don't read the prologue at the beginning of a book and an author tells you where they're going to go and then they go in and begin to unpack that in depth. You don't go, well, let's get rid of that book. That guy's a liar because in the prologue he compressed it and then afterwards he expanded it. Remember, the Bible is a book. It can be treated and it should be treated like a literary device. So in Genesis chapter 1, what happens is creation takes place. And here's what we learn about creation. In this world, God creates the world and it is good. And he gets to the sixth day and he creates man and woman. And he declares that particular creation to be very good. Furthermore, in the creative event, God said, I will create man and woman in my image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, and God created man and woman in his image. In his image, he created them male and female. So here in Genesis chapter 1, God has created the world and he has created it good. Adam and Eve are created without sin or without evil. They exist in a perfect world. There's one problem that changes the course of the rest of human history, and it's found in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of the tree of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now time out. How we're going to attack this particular passage. In the opening three verses of Genesis chapter 3, Eve misquotes what God has said. She, apparently when instructions were given out, she was not paying attention. God had said not to eat of it. She said we can't even touch it. Verse number 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. This is typical, right? It's just you at home all over again. Your mom calls you out over something, and what do you do? You pass blame off to a sibling, maybe one that's not even at the house. This particular instance, Adam's not only there, he's not leaving. That's another conversation for another time. 
Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You say, David, why in the world are we reading this? Again, excellent question. The reason why we're reading this is because the answer that the Bible gives as to why there is evil, pain, and suffering in the world is directly connected to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world. And when sin enters into the world, it corrupts all of the world. Not just some of it, but all of the world. And because of this, we now can move to our theological argument. And that is this. The reason why evil, pain, and suffering exists in the world is because of sin. Sin ushers in destruction, chaos, pain, suffering, and evil. And in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that through this deception, sin enters into the world. Now, this seems really depressing at this particular point, but I promise you it's not as depressing. Well, it is depressing. Let's be honest with you. It's depressing. It is sad, but there's hope that can be found in these verses. But we need to backtrack a little bit at this point. If you remember, at the end of our philosophical argument, you said, what requires a moral law giver? And I said, personhood. Personhood requires a moral law giver. Whenever we talk about evil, we talk about evil to or for or from people. Here's the bottom line. All of humanity is created in the image of God. We know this. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And what happens because of being created in the image of God? You, I, and everyone around me are created with worth, dignity, and value. The theological argument is this. If God does not create humanity... In his image, if they are inherently evil at create the creative moment of Adam and Eve, then they contain no worth, no value, and no dignity. But because they're created with worth, value, and dignity, and now sin enters into the world, what sin does is it mars that image. And Francis Schaeffer would argue, because the image of God has been marred, We have great hope. 
you say, how can you have great hope? This does not seem hopeful. Well, I want to turn your attention to verse number 15. This is the hope for humanity. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's hope. You say, this is weird. What could he possibly be talking about? There's going to come one that will crush the head of Satan, bruise the heel of the Savior, but through that act will provide redemption for all of humanity. See, the hope for all Christians is found in the finished work of Christ. Because we have to have something that will counter this evil. Now, I want to pause at this particular moment and say this may seem crazy to some of you. But it has to operate this way for a few reasons. Number one, number one, if this is how evil, pain, and suffering enter into the world, you and I now can explain what is the reason for evil in humanity and God is not responsible for it. Which means that God is absolutely and rightly still in control. Furthermore, if sin causes the image of God to be marred in human beings, there's hope that something can fix that marring. Third, if that is the case, Christians should be the most out and out advocates for justice in the world. This launches them into advocating because if we understand this, then our heart can break and be angry at sin that exists in the world and know that there's a solution. If not, then there is no hope. If there is no opportunity, if man is inherently evil, has no worth, dignity, or value, then he is to be pitied, and there is no reason even to think about helping other people. But if man is created, if man contains worth, value, and dignity, then we're right to be outraged at the atrocities in this world. We're right to stop things like sex trafficking. We're right to argue that racism is evil. We're right to jump into humanitarian aid and causes because we understand that there's worth, dignity, and value in every human being. Can I pause at this moment and tell you if you're sitting in here and you feel like no one cares about you, no one loves you, that you're not worth anything to anybody, the Bible contradicts that message completely and says you're of inestimable worth, greater worth than you even know. You're a greater value than you ever could hope for. And you have dignity. 
it doesn't matter what anyone has ever told you. Because you see, creation happens, then fall happens, and suffering, pain, and evil enter into the world. But it's through this suffering, pain, and evil in the world that we can know what is the great hope. And the hope is this word, redemption. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. If you borrowed one of our pew Bibles, I guess technically we don't have pews in here, so chair Bibles. It's on page 800 in that Bible. hope of redemption because now Christians can fight evil without fighting God. God's actually on their side. He abhors evil. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Paul the apostle writes here, moreover brethren I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you which you also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain for I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received Paul says here's the most important thing you need to know and be reminded of that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve Paul goes on to list how many more people saw the resurrected Christ David, why do you take us here? Because Genesis 3.14 is linked to 1 Corinthians 15 in this respect. The one who would crush the head of the serpent and the one whose heel would be bruised is none other than Jesus Christ. In his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is where the plot thickens. Ask the question, why does pain, evil, and suffering exist in the world? It's a valid question. It's a valid question because so many of us experience it. And I've given you the answer of sin, but here's the ironic thing about Christ. Redemption is accomplished through pain, evil, and suffering. ironic thing about Christianity is that Jesus Christ endured unimaginable pain, unimaginable suffering at the hands of his enemies. As they spread his body on arguably the most gruesome and most horrific way of executing anyone in the history of mankind. Prior to that, he had been beaten, he had been whipped, his back would have looked so disgusting. And we try, I mean, and we do, we try to visually unpack for people what this looks. We think of Passion of the Christ, we think of uh, the Bible series that the the History Channel did. We try to unpack what it would have looked like for Christ to endure the cross. And I'm just telling you, I think that if you and I saw the back of Jesus being laid down on a cross, I think everyone in this room would want to be Jesus. In the middle of this pain, this evil, 
And that at the hands of evil men and suffering, Christ is nailed to the cross. Why? Because the sin of humanity demands a payment. And the only thing that can satisfy that payment, Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. The cause of sin is death. The only way to escape death is by death being defeated. And the only way that death could be defeated is through payment of the sacrifice. Christ goes to the cross. He dies on that cross. He's placed in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, people come to prepare his body only to find that he is not there. He's risen. Here's the irony of the question. The irony of the question is that sometimes the greatest pain, the greatest evil, and the greatest suffering that you and I ever will experience in our lives is ultimately for our good. And the irony is that God takes pain, evil, and suffering and redeems and offers humanity an option, an escape from this world, and is pushing us toward being conformed to the image of Christ. You see, it's in the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross that you and I have the opportunity to escape pain, evil, and suffering in this world. So I want to close tonight with a personal question. You see, everybody in this room comes in tonight, and this is a loaded question because everybody has different experiences, and everybody experiences life differently and some of you have experienced unimaginable pain and unimaginable suffering and unimaginable evil you don't even want to suggest that you haven't experienced it but i want to share with you two personal experiences and then ask you a personal question and i'm done for our time together in the message portion The first story is about a girl who's 11 years old. She grew up in Champaign, Illinois, and she uh, lived with her mom who was divorced from her dad. And one day she was away with her uncle at a day camp. And her dad decided that if her mom wasn't going to date her anymore, she was not going to date anyone So went to her house, knocked on the door. She answered the door. He pushed the door open. He shot the mom and took his own life. That girl ends up going and living with her grandmother. And her grandmother decides at that particular moment, now having her grandchildren living with her, It's probably a good idea that we begin to go to church, that we begin to hop around the town of Champaign going to different churches. Until they land at a little church in Champaign called Bible Baptist Church. And for the first time in their lives, they hear the gospel and the grandmother and the grandfather and the daughter and her brother. As I was talking to this lady, she said, you know, it wasn't until I was much older that I thought that maybe one of the reasons why God had allowed such pain and such suffering to enter into my life was because 
this is how I was going to come to the end of the prophecy. So thank you for sharing with us what you have. Three years ago, we began the process of trying to get pregnant. It's weird because your goals and your dreams in life are suddenly interrupted by suffering and pain. And I don't care if you think that it's not evil. It may be evil to you. I don't know what you've experienced in your life. But in a weird way, in God's kind providence, he allowed that suffering to open up the door for us to begin the process of adopting a baby. We're hoping that in the next year to year and a half, we will adopt a baby and bring that baby out of a bad situation to a good situation. From a situation of lostness to a situation of hopefulness. When we ask the question, why would a loving God allow pain, suffering, and evil into the world? I think we ultimately need to look to our own experiences and say, maybe, perhaps, I'm walking through this because God, in his kind grace, has opened a door that I would have never even noticed. Some of you are sitting in here tonight, you had no intention of coming tonight, you had no intention of being here, you saw this question and you're like, I've experienced extreme evil, pain, and suffering. I just want to tell you that I'm sorry that you've experienced that. But it doesn't negate a good and loving God who provided an opportunity for you in the finished work of Jesus Christ to be able to escape one day the pain and suffering and extreme evil of this world. You have a hope only in Jesus Christ. Because, let's retrace our philosophical argument. If there is evil, there must be good. If there is good, there must be a moral law that determines what is good and evil. If there is a moral law that determines what is good good and evil, there must be a moral law giver. That moral law giver is God. And in his kindness, in his grace towards you, he has given the answer to the sin the pain, the suffering, and the evil that you experience in your life in Jesus Christ. What we're going to do is something that we do every week here at Grave, and if you're a first-time guest, this may seem odd to you, but we firmly believe that when the Bible is open and preached that we should have an opportunity to respond to that. And there's no pressure for anyone to respond. But what we, what we do is we invite our band, I'm going to invite our band to come and to join me on stage and They are going to uh, sing a song. We're going to stand together here in a moment and sing this song together. And in that moment, we want to give you the opportunity to respond. We have been praying for this for longer than we can even remember. Honestly, probably since February. That God would move in a mighty and powerful way through this series. And so what we've done 
is there are adults in the back. So if you have questions or you didn't understand something, maybe you want to know, how can I actually know Jesus Christ? They would love nothing more than to show you how you can know Christ. Maybe tonight you're a Christian and you've had these questions and you need to spend some time praying. This area up here is open. The rooms to the side are open for you to respond. Maybe you just want to sit where you are as we sing and respond. So what I want to do is ask you to stand with me. I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition into our time of response. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.